Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Jennifer Reed. Dr. Reed is a board-certified psychiatrist in Philadelphia, specializing in anxiety and sleep disorders. She's a member of the clinical faculty at the University of Pennsylvania Department of Psychiatry. She is also a contributor to Psychology Today and writes and podcasts as The Reflective Doc. Today, we talk about insomnia and the non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments for it. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So today the topic, which is, I think, a really important topic that I haven't addressed too often on my podcast, and it's about insomnia and how we approach insomnia, how we think about it, how we consider different types of treatments. And so I know it's something that you work a lot with, and I think you're a great person to have on to talk about it. Awesome. No, I love talking about sleep. My husband makes fun of me and makes snoring sounds when I talk about it, but I think it's just such a fascinating and important aspect of our overall health. I think I originally became interested in it because so many of my patients were coming in with insomnia, other sleep issues, and it was so difficult to figure out how to treat them, right? I'd treat their depression, their anxiety, OCD, all these things, and they'd still be struggling with their sleep. And I was like, there must be something I'm missing here in how we approach it. I wanted to clarify a little bit in the difference between insomnia and sleep deprivation. So I think you see, you read a lot in, you know, newspapers and magazines about the health risks of sleep deprivation, health risks like metabolism and your higher risk of heart attacks and and cancer related issues, immune system related issues. And when we're talking about the difference, insomnia really is about the quality of the sleep. So someone may be spending nine, 10 hours in bed, but they're really only getting good quality sleep for five or six of those hours, for example. And so the definition is really three months or more, three nights a week of having low quality or unsatisfying sleep. So that's insomnia. And then you have sleep deprivation, which essentially is defined as fewer than seven hours of sleep per night. And that is kind of a massive problem worldwide. I think there were like 70 million people that weren't meeting the criteria for adequate sleep in the United States. And you think about all the people that are struggling the next day with fatigue and some of these other health issues. So sleep deprivation is really about the amount of time or sleep opportunity you give yourself. How much time do you give yourself in bed? And some of this is is dictated by their social situation, financial situation, right? People working multiple jobs or coming home and caring for kids and having to do some work later in the evening, or they're doing different shift work. Like it can be difficult to reach that, but this is just sort of a rule of thumb. of What's the ideal? is maybe giving yourself at least seven or eight hours of sleep opportunity each night if you're able to do that. So as often as you're able to do that, the better. But I certainly understand that's not always possible. So when it comes to insomnia, I think that people come in often after years of struggling with this issue. So maybe they haven't seen a psychiatrist before or they haven't struggled with things like anxiety or depression, but they've been having trouble with their sleep and have tried everything, as they'll tell you right? They've tried over-the-counter meds. They've read about sleep hygiene and become absolutely rigid about how they approach their sleep. 
Maybe they're using alcohol to help them sleep, unfortunately, which is not ideal. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But they've just tried so many different things and they're feeling so frustrated by the time they come in to see me. So the first thing we do is I tell them, you know, the difference between insomnia and sleep deprivation. What is insomnia? And that insomnia isn't dangerous. It's not lack of sleep. It's not something that's really threatening to your health, but it is really frustrating and upsetting. And so it's finding ways to really shift our sense that if I have a bad night of sleep, I'm really at high risk of some sort of negative health outcome, or I'm not going to be able to function next day, or I'm going to be just a total disaster. Some of the ways that we speak to ourselves about it and trying to let let them know that insomnia is something that's really treatable and that it isn't dangerous to your health, right? It's frustrating and we want to work at it. And people, especially people that are maybe a little bit more anxious at baseline, like higher trade anxiety, or just, you know, harder driving individuals who are used to working harder to make something work better, come in and say, I'm working really hard at sleep and it's not working. And I think that's one of the most difficult aspects of insomnia is almost the harder you work at it, the more you think about it, the more you try, the worse it gets. And so that's so different from some of the other ways that people have approached, you know, certainly their professional lives or personal lives, also their health, right? Like if I exercise more, I'll be healthier and those kinds of things. So that's typically where we start. And then I do a full assessment of literally, when do you have dinner? What do you do after dinner? What are the activities you do in the evening? What do you do to kind of wind down? When do you get into bed? When do you turn out the light? When do you fall asleep? I mean, it's really with a fine tooth comb going through what their different activities and behaviors are. And also trying to decide cognitively how much are anxious thoughts contributing here or beliefs about what insomnia means or how dangerous it might be or threatening it might be. You're just trying to get an overall picture of how they're doing and how they've done on at work or at home on days when they didn't get much sleep and really trying to assess, do they have cognitive distortions about that? And you ask them, let's think about the past week. How many nights of the week do you think you had insomnia? And they'll say, well, maybe I slept okay three nights and the other nights were just a disaster. Well, tell me about the next day. Tell me something that really negative that happened as a result of your insomnia. Did you lose your job? Were you in a terrible accident? You know, like awful things that they imagine are going to happen. And to a person, they typically say, well, I mean, I was more tired. I was more irritable. I kind of like was fighting with my spouse more or yelling at my kids or, you know, I was definitely snacking more. Like things that aren't optimal, but aren't catastrophic. So thinking about insomnia is something that isn't so destructive and catastrophic, but certainly still something that you want to, to treat. So once we get to that point, you know, I do like to do a really thorough history of all the different medications that they've tried in the past, potentially, if at all, to help them sell sleep and try and explain a little bit about some of the details of those medications. So when do you move from more behavioral techniques like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, into the medication or naturopathic sleep aid? area? When do you decide that it's time for that? Right. I mean, it certainly is based on the individual. And I do use, I mean, the benzodiazepines that we commonly use like clonopin or Ativan, I do use those in some cases for individuals. If there is an underlying anxiety disorder and there is so many anxious thoughts leading up to sleep, 
and they're feeling, you know, heart racing and feeling some of these somatic symptoms of anxiety. I have for some of these individuals said, let's try a week where you're taking a low dose of Ativan, a 0.5 of Ativan once at night, every night, not if you're feeling awake or not, but just taking it consistently to kind of reset the system. These agents, I think, can be used well in short-term ways, both for anxiety and panic symptoms, but also for insomnia. But I always explain to them about those benzodiazepines that similarly to alcohol, they actually interfere somewhat with your sleep architecture. So the way that we sleep at night is there are several different layers of sleep that we're trying to navigate, that our brain's trying to navigate. You have the REM sleep that we talk about, you know, rapid eye movement sleep, largely when you're doing a lot of dreaming, you're actually physically paralyzed during that time, not your, you know, breathing and other apparatus that really you need to maintain breathing and heartbeat and such, but your somatic muscles or your physical, you know, your arms and legs are actually paralyzed, which is adaptive, right? If you're acting out a dream and you punch your bed partner, that doesn't work out very well. So you have your REM sleep. And then you have non-REM sleep, so different layers from a light kind of twilight sleep, you know, where you kind of think you're falling asleep and then you might sort of dolt awake or have one of those myoclonic jerks and then into deeper levels of sleep. So stages three and four, they kind of combine them into three stages three now are that deep restorative sleep that you really want for consolidation of memory. That's the time your brain kind of cleans out the system, so to speak, that lymphatic drainage system that kind of drains things like tau protein, amyloid protein, things that can build up and things like Alzheimer's disease. So those are the different stages of sleep. The trouble with the benzodiazepine and alcohol, even to a greater degree, is they make it harder to reach that deep restorative sleep. So non-REM stage three and four sleep, you're going to be sleeping a little bit lighter. You're a little bit more aroused, not like sexually, but you know, as far as being awake during that time. And so and I think you make a good point about alcohol that it helps mm-hmm. people fall asleep, but then the quality of sleep is is diminished, right? Mm-hmm. And there's often that early awakening associated with kind of after a night of drinking, feeling that they have a hard time staying asleep. Absolutely. And that's the issue, right? That it can be, it's a sedative. It can sedate you initially, but then you have this more twilight or like less deep sleep. And you also have, as the, the alcohol is broken down, the metabolites are really stimulating and they can create anxiety on top of that. So if there's an underlying anxiety disorder, alcohol can really be an issue that way, even more so than the benzodiazepines because of some of the different metabolites. So I do talk with them about that risk. And people who come to me and have been on these meds for a long time and are wondering, you know, why are you telling me I shouldn't stay on this long-term? We do talk about some of the risks of the quality of sleep And that that in itself, along with some of the data on the benzodiazepines, as you get older, there can be some cognitive effects, right? Some memory effects with these agents. So it's not a long-term choice that I want people to be on. And if they feel they need to use it long-term for sleep, then we have to investigate what else might be going on because we need to do something different. So again, in short-term cases, I will use those. There's also the Z drugs. We think about like, you know, brand names, Ambien, Sonata. Lunesta, which are somewhat similar to benzodiazepines, but more specific for the the alpha receptor, the GABA receptor. And so they don't affect you as broadly. You don't have the sort of sedation across the system. Things like balance and concentration and memory seem to be less affected by the Z drugs. And they're really designed to be primarily for sleep onset. So if someone's having trouble maintaining sleep, they fall asleep fine, but they wake up after three or four hours and they're wide awake or can't get back to sleep. They're not great agents for that. 
they've tried to kind of come up with some that you take in the middle of the night. There's an Ambien version called Intermezzo that you're supposed to just take a little bit of in the middle of the night. Again, I think it certainly can be used for short term. And that's really what they're studied in is short term use, not to be taken for the next 10 to 20 years, you know, for sleep. And the data on the Z drugs, a couple different issues. Number one, they don't work that well. When you look at the difference in sleep latency, so the time that you take it to the, you know, and get into bed, time you fall asleep, maybe it's shortening that by 10 to 20 minutes, perhaps. Maybe it's increasing overall sleep time by the same amount. It's not a robust change in sleep. So that's one issue that I have with them. They shouldn't really be taken long-term because they haven't been studied that way. They don't work all that well. And there's also something called complex sleep behaviors that we worry about with those agents, things like sleepwalking, sleep eating. People will wake up and come downstairs to their kitchen and find a whole meal sitting on the table that they didn't realize they had eaten. And then I had a patient who did sleep laundry, which I guess could be a positive thing. But you know, sleep driving or some of these things can be really dangerous. So that's something that we have to be careful about. It's more risk in women. It's more risk in people who maybe take it and then try to stay awake after taking it. Maybe they're using it as a way to sort of feel differently or get high with the the meds. So that's a little bit higher risk. And the dosing of these agents, we need to be pretty careful about both for those types of symptoms and then also daytime grogginess, daytime's effect, you know, effect on memory, especially for women. So you think about it, if it only helps a little bit, and you're at higher risk of the next day having some significant issues on memory or cognition, you think, well, what, why on earth would these be ones that we'd want to use? So I don't use them that often. I think that risk outweighs benefit in a lot of ways. I do on short, you know, short-term situations. Maybe someone has a lot of trouble sleeping on, you know, when they're traveling or they have a particular stressor happening in their lives. And I just want to make sure they're trying to sleep to be able to process that trauma because it's a big part of what sleep can provide for you too. Kind of calms down the amygdala and some of those other fear-creating aspects of your deeper brain structure. So if I really want to make sure someone can fall asleep for the next week, maybe I'll try one of these agents. Quick question. We talked a little bit about alcohol use. So a lot of people ask me about use of CBD or Mm -hmm. cannabis to help with sleep. They think it's very helpful. How do you approach a patient who maybe is wanting to use that or is using that for sleep? Well, I guess again, it depends on the individual. Like what are their risk factors? I think we do have higher concerns for cannabis use in general and someone who has an underlying anxiety disorder because long-term regular use can be associated with some worsening symptoms. And then there's also, you know, psychosis, for example, we'd be really careful about using that. And even depression would be a little bit more concerned, especially if they struggled with energy, motivation, some of those aspects of a depressive episode. As far as the data goes for cannabis itself, so thinking about cannabis as the THC and the CBD is sort of these two primary compounds. There are over 400 compounds in cannabis. So we don't exactly know what's in there and even what ratio of these two agents we have. So the consistency can be difficult to find. So you don't know what you're taking from night to night. There's some data that maybe can be a little helpful for sleep latency. So being able to fall asleep a little bit. I tell people, I think there are better choices and, you know, using it here and there because you're feeling particularly awake or you want to have a relaxing evening and just utilize it. It's legal and people use it recreationally. I don't have trouble with that per se. But I think we don't have a lot of information about it being really effective for sleep. And I think there can be some withdrawal kind of rebound effects when people stop taking it. 
So I'd say, you know, proceed with caution. I would really think you need some other options in place because that may not be your best overall fix for the sleep issue. Yeah. And how do you approach this idea of how long should someone take a medication for sleep? Is it long-term? How do they get off of it? How do you think about just how to transition from taking to not taking? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that most of these meds are prescribed by primary care providers. And, you know, they have 20 minutes to see a patient and cover them from head to toe and all these different systems, which I really admire them for. I don't know how they do it. And I think often when a patient is complaining of sleep issues, if they even think to do so, which they don't always, it is faster to prescribe a medication. And that is something that's going to be helpful. And you know, they're probably going to be able to use it short term. The trouble is that then they stay on the med way too long. So that's sort of where it starts is they're getting these prescriptions and the primary care providers, you know, to their credit, they're really trying to help the patient. It's just, they don't have the ability to then connect them with someone who maybe can do some of the behavioral work that really can lead to sustained improvements in sleep. So when I work with a patient, if I'm giving them medication, I will say, but we also need to be working on the behavioral aspects of this because this shouldn't be a long-term choice for you. Here are the risks of it being a long-term choice. And so that's where introducing them to some of the CBT for insomnia techniques that we utilize, in addition to like sleep hygiene, which is a part of that, but it's more just setting the scene for a good night's rest. It doesn't really help as robustly as some of the other techniques do. But I usually tell someone just the med alone, except in cases, like I said, where you've had a significant trauma or situation where you need to make sure the person is getting some sleep for short term. I just think that it needs to be coupled with some behavioral work, some information. And even that might be, frankly, I have some different books that I recommend that people can read and really learn about CBTI, CBT for insomnia. It's hard to find a provider. There is a shortage of those. So there might be even there's a free VA CBT for insomnia app that people can access. So I really say to them, look, this needs to be a short term option for you. And then if someone comes in on an agent or is doing well, but wants to come off or I'm recommending they come off, we do it like agonizingly slowly and really try to pull off slowly with especially the benzodiazepines, especially in people maybe over 60 they're probably going to have more withdrawal type symptoms as we pull those off for them and some rebound insomnia. So how do we then help them cope with those symptoms? Because the impulse is to say, oh, I didn't sleep well for two nights. This isn't going to work. I'm going to restart the medication. So it's preparing them for those sort of rebound nights where they're going to struggle a little bit more, giving them some strategies for how to approach that and kind of reminding them of the importance of getting good quality sleep. I mean, there is no medication out there that truly mimics our natural sleep architecture. And since sleep is such an important part of our health, us kind of maneuvering it or changing it a little bit with these medications, it's just not the optimal situation for people. Right. And we can talk a little bit about some of the other sleep options, some of the kind of maybe less addictive options. And I guess I wonder what, what you tend to think of when you think of non-benzodiazepine or non-Z drug options for sleep. Absolutely. So one I'd want to comment on is melatonin. You can obviously get it over the counter. And I think if people are going to use it over the counter, I do recommend they get it specifically only the melatonin, right? It can come in all sorts of different mixtures and I'm not crazy about that. Where we see the benefit with the melatonin in particular are people say 55 years and older. So studied primarily 55 to age 80 in some of the bigger trials. But that's really where you start to have some natural atrophy, brain atrophy as you age. 
And there is a weakening of that circadian impulse or that reminder that like, this is when I sleep and this is when I wake. So for those individuals, it can work very well as a signal. It's not a sedative. It's a signal that tells you, okay, I'm approaching sleep. Typically it's released by your pineal gland as your body's starting to approach sleep and melatonin's released and it just works naturally. So we're adding a, a little bit in to see if we can help turn that signal on for sleep. And so that can be used, usually needs to be used, you know, one to two hours before sleep. Again, we're signaling, so we need to give it enough time. It's not something to be taken right before bed. And side effect risks on it are pretty minimal. You know, sometimes people feel maybe a little foggy or tired the next day or have a headache, but most of the time I've seen it really well, well tolerated. If you talk to the sleep experts, they might say use a very small dose of it. People often use maybe two to five milligrams. It might be more than they necessarily need, but again, it's well tolerated and safe you know, for the most part that we've seen in studies. So it certainly is okay to take those higher amounts. Is there an instance where it might actually cause the reverse and cause more wakefulness? And is there kind of a discussion about the timing of use? Well, I think that, you know, again, you'd want to be using it before your optimal sleep time. So maybe a couple hours before that, or people will use, you know, so that can be the case for shift workers or someone who's struggling with jet lag and needing to try and reset. I guess if you were taking it at the wrong time or, you know, inappropriately, it could certainly be an issue to make you more sleepy when you didn't need to be, for example. I mean, your circadian rhythm system is really tied up in every aspect of your body from when you're hungry, when you have meals, when you have energy, your body temperature. And so, you know, messing with that or tweaking that a little bit can, can put people at a little bit of risk. Got it. And do you ever suggest valerian root first thing? I do sometimes. I mean, there certainly are individuals who just don't want anything to do with some of these prescribed agents, understandably. And so, and there is some data for valerian root to be used as a supplement for sleep. So I certainly encourage them to try that and kind of base it on the recommendations on the bottle. You know, I don't have any specific recommendations for the valerian root, but certainly worth trying. And I think there's both the kind of chemical component of that, but also the psychological component of that, which is that this is going to be helpful. And also I'm taking something because having confidence that you're going to sleep or even sort of feeling like, yeah, if I sleep great, if I don't, it's going to be okay. I'll be okay. I think those are the mindsets we're trying to facilitate. And so valerian root, I think, can be helpful for insomnia, but also can be encouraging and confidence building for sleep. That's true of a lot of the agents. And those have relatively few side effects. So you get the good without the, the risks there. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I guess a phrase comes to mind, mindfulness for insomnia, mm. right? So this idea of you can just sit with an insomnia in a way and kind of be revving up of emotional state or discomfort because you're not sleeping then leads to more insomnia. So if you approach it with this kind of mindfulness viewpoint of, okay, I'm not sleeping. I'm going to let that. This also will pass. Eventually I will get some rest. If I don't, I am resting my body. This idea that kind of just to allow you to kind of relax around the idea of not sleeping is helpful. Absolutely. And even some of the CB techniques of shifting from those, what if thoughts, what if I don't sleep tonight? What if I don't, you know, get to sleep and I have this meeting tomorrow, shifting it to more of an if then approach, you know, if I don't sleep that well, yeah, the meeting, I might not feel as vibrant. I may not have as many creative thoughts that pop in, or I may be a little more irritable or hungry, but I'm going to get through it and probably perform at a pretty high level. I even ask patients like rank, what percentage you function a day after a poor night of sleep? And they might initially say a 10%. Okay. So 10% basically means you're not able to care for yourself at all. Right. And that's really, that's really low. So 
get them to shift their mindset about what the true dysfunction is for them the next day. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think of other directions to go in <laughs> about sleep. So I think some of the agents that we do use are in the antidepressant category. So trazodone is one that we often use, which is actually an antidepressant dosed up in the 300 to 400 milligram range. And we're dosing it way down at like 25 to maybe 100 max, probably 200 milligrams for sleep. So we're co-opting the side effect there. So there are pros and cons to that. Pros are that actually trazodone seems to have less interference with the sleep architecture than a lot of the other agents. The cons are that there can be some real grogginess the next morning because it can help with sleep onset and maintenance, but sometimes we overshoot a bit or people just feel really groggy and tired with it. Typically that does diminish over time and they start to be more comfortable with it. Some people just won't take it again. I don't blame them, but that can diminish over time, but the effect can diminish over time too, because you're kind of, you're getting used to the side effect that we're trying to co-opt at this point. So that can make it a little bit more difficult. Um, doxepin is another antidepressant that we use in low doses for insomnia that can be used in all ages, certainly the elderly, if you're trying to avoid some of these agents. Meds like Seroquel can be used in, you know, for sleep issues and people who have more severe mental health issues like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. I really am against using it primarily for insomnia because I think the metabolic risks on it are really high and it's just kind of overkill, sort of bringing a really big tool for a, a smaller problem in this case. So I'm kind of against using things like Seroquel, for example. Remeron and Mertazapine is another antidepressant that works really nicely if someone's got a really anxious or agitated depression, they're not sleeping, they're not eating, can help with appetite and help with sleep, but also can lead to weight gain, right? So it's always the flip side of what you're taking. There are some newer agents out there, at least relatively new. There are the melatonin receptor agonists. So you have like Vermelteon, which is primarily for sleep onset. So there's some data, again, the, the number of minutes it really gives patients additionally for sleep is not a super high number. And it can be hard to get any of these new agents covered by insurance. So the cost can be prohibitive. There's Lemborexent or Suvorexent, which is the orexin receptor antagonist. And those actually there's been some data in the elderly, that they can be effective and also much lower risk for some of the cognitive issues that some of the other agents use. Again, cost is really the issue and being able to get those covered. You may have to demonstrate you've tried so many other agents and some of those you don't want to try in someone who may be, you know, medically unstable elderly patient, for example. But there are some of those agents that are being developed. That was a great overview of a lot of different medications <laughs> for insomnia. I'm impressed. Unrelated to medication, the, I had a question and I forgot it and now I remember it. The sleep apps, what do you think? How do you work with those with people? I know some people have on their, their watches, kind of it, it tracks sleep. How do you approach that? That's a great question. I think in some individuals, those that might really try to use the sleep hygiene and really become you know, very focused, almost obsessive about the different techniques, I think it can be counterproductive. Because I have had some of these patients come to me and say, I feel like I slept well last night, but then I checked my watch and my watch told me I didn't. And so therefore I didn't. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's all we need. I think that they are not sensitive enough, like a true sleep study where you're really, you know, you're hooking up, we're looking at your EEG, we're looking at your breathing patterns, all the things to tell us what your sleep is like. They're just nowhere near sensitive enough. You know, maybe they're based on movement or heart rate and things like that. So in general, I tell people, I, I don't think it's a great choice. I think, again, it gets into this idea that 
you're trying to work harder at sleep, you're trying to obsess more and really think about it and really be aware of it. And what we're almost trying to get you to do is say, ah, say la vie, if I sleep, if I don't. And so I think they can be counterproductive in that way. I think, you know, CBT for insomnia apps, like the VA one, or if there are others out there I'm not aware of, but I think that can be helpful in here are some of the strategies and some of the things to think about behaviorally that I'd be more prone to recommend than some of the trackers and things like that. Yeah. I thought of a n- more medical question though, too. So, okay. Sleep apnea. So if someone has sleep apnea, how do you approach, I know, I know it's really complex sleep meds for somebody who also suffers from sleep apnea is maybe using a CPAP machine. Do you give sleep meds? Do you not? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, the first thing I would want to find out is it's not uncommon for them to be struggling with using their CPAP machine, or maybe they say they're using it, but maybe every other night they pull it off or their spouse says it's too loud or something to that effect. So I'd want to get a sense about how well they're treating their sleep apnea, in part because I want to know how risky would it be to prescribe anything that has sedative properties, right? Because we're thinking about respiratory depression, we're thinking about even just how your body changes and like the mass around your neck and how, you know, a sedative might actually decrease some of the muscle tension there. So I do want to know if it's being treated, if it's being treated appropriately. I think I would lean away from the benzodiazepines that are respiratory depressants. There's been some data that they can be used or that the Z drugs in particular can be used in sleep apnea and there doesn't seem to be higher risk of morbidity, but maybe I would lean towards something that would be outside of the GABA type meds altogether. So considering something like trazodone or doxepin, melatonin, you know, I don't think it's that effective for younger adults. So it's not necessarily that one, but I do prescribe it in those cases. I think it's a mix of how severe their sleep apnea is though. And are there other things that we could institute? Yeah. Well, I'm just realizing I want to be mindful of your time and want to make sure that, you know, we don't go too far into this, but I'm, I'm very impressed in the short amount of time that we had that you gave an incredible summary of kind of use of medications for sleep and insomnia and kind of other behavioral approaches. I am very impressed. You did a great job. Um, I think also the other really important thing to mention is that we are not the listener's prescriber. And this is kind of meant as a discussion to discuss with your prescriber about different options for yourself as a way to just kind of think about various options. So I think that's also important to say, but before we end, is there anything kind of last words, other things that you think are just important for the listener to know on this topic? I think, you know, learning about what CBT for insomnia is all about, because I think there are different ways to access the treatment. You don't have to necessarily meet one-on-one with a provider, but the meds that we have for insomnia are just not, they don't work that well. The risks are high. There was a big review recently of just women in general who were using some of these medications for two years and really not seeing any improvement in their sleep comparatively to those who didn't use the medications. So I think it's increased the awareness about CBT for insomnia because it can be the most effective treatment to try and get your sleep back on track. I agree. Yeah. And more longstanding results too. All right. Well, I will make sure on the episode description that we have your information. So in case someone's interested in learning more about you and the work you do, and we'll also place some resources on there. So I'll make sure to include the um, link to the app of the VA app for the CBTI. It's called CBTI Coach. And so we can also make sure that that's there as well for the listener if they want to learn a bit more about it. Wonderful. That sounds terrific. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's just fun. 
This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.